Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 730 with Dr. Tim Elmore. Tim has such a cool perspective in terms of great principles and stories that illustrate what he calls the eight paradoxes of effective leaders. So you'll learn one, why leaders say it's more difficult to lead today than earlier. Two, the eight conflicting demands of great leaders. And three, the two behaviors that set aspiring leaders apart. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, please pay us a visit at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP730. Now here's Tim's story. Dr. Tim Elmore is the founder and CEO of Growing Leaders, an Atlanta-based nonprofit organization created to develop emerging leaders. Since founding Growing Leaders, Elmore has spoken to more than 500,000 students, faculty, and staff on hundreds of campuses across the country. Elmore has provided leadership training and resources for multiple athletic programs. In addition, a number of government offices in Washington, D.C. have utilized Dr. Elmore's curriculum and training. Elmore is a dynamic communicator who uses principles, images, and stories to strengthen leaders. He's taught leadership to Delta Global Services, Chick-fil-A, The Home Depot, The John Maxwell Company, Home Bank, Gold, Keist, Inc., and many others. He has shared his insights across over 30 countries and appeared in a whole boatload of cool media such as the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, MSNBC, Washington Post, and a whole lot more. Big thanks to Tim for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. And here he is. Tim, welcome to How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Thank you, Pete. Good to be with you. Well, I'm so excited to chat. You've worked with a lot of leaders over a lot of years. I'm curious, what's one of your most surprising, counterintuitive, fascinating discoveries you've made about us human beings and and leadership across your career? (laughs) This won't shock you, but uh, meeting with C-level leaders and finding out they're just as human as the intern at the office. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, we gain experience and we gain wisdom, I think. I like to think we do. But then you find out Bob puts his pants on one leg at a time and he struggles with his daughter and his dog, and, you know, that sort of thing. So I think that's liberating a little bit because I think we think we have to perfect something by the time we reach 50. And that just doesn't happen. I find that really reassuring and, and true to my own experience. I remember in consulting the first time I was in a meeting with like, oh, a CEO is going to yeah, be in the meeting yeah. and I'm going to be there too. Oh my gosh. Uh, my yeah. first sighting of a CEO up close and personal in real life. 
And then he asked us very basic, normal questions like, oh, so does that number include the benefits or yeah, just the yeah. salaries? I was, like, <laughs> exactly. I was like, that's what I would ask if I yeah. were him. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Maybe becoming CEO means you get the guts to ask those questions yeah. that we're afraid to ask. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, so your latest work is called The Eight Paradoxes of Great Leadership, Embracing the Conflicting Demands of Today's Workplace. That's cool. Tell us, what's the big idea behind this book here? Yeah. Well. I think it's not hyperbole to say we're living in and leading in very funky, different times. This is my 42nd year leading something as a paid leader, and I've just never seen a time like this that we're in. So I don't mean to exaggerate or create drama, but I think I just look around. In fact, I'll tell you what, the genesis for this book actually was a green room conversation I had with 16 CEOs. So it was right before a, an event, and I thought, I'm going to capitalize on this moment and talk to these people about what they're experiencing. So, Pete, I asked the question, do you think leading people today is harder than it was when you first learned to lead? And I thought I'd get a mixture of answers, but every single one of these people said, absolutely. Mm-hmm. One of them said 110%. You know, I mean, they were, they were ready to wave the flag. And then I kind of pushed back and I said, now that's kind of odd that you would say that. Wouldn't you think leadership would have been harder when we were in our 20s and we first started leading something, but we didn't know much. But every one of them stuck to their guns. And that set me on a search, really. Why is it that we would say that? And part of the reason I think is that we do live in just complex times. Post-COVID-19 pandemic is just weird. And we don't know what normal will look like two years from now. It may look much like this. We thought we were coming through the Delta variant and then there's another variant. But here's what else I know. When I look around at leaders and teams, I feel like people come to our teams today with higher levels of education, mm-hmm. higher levels of expectation, what they expect from a leader today, higher levels of entitlement, meaning I feel like I'm entitled to more perks and benefits than ever before. That's not wicked or evil. It's just, it's just true. Higher levels of emotion. Pete, I remember when I first began my career, it was very common for bosses to say, Leave your personal problems at the door. Come and get the work done. You know, and that was just, okay. You know, today it's bring your whole selves to work. And that's awesome. We keep it real that way, but we bring emotions, we bring baggage, we bring personal problems with us. And so it's just a different day. And that's perhaps why leaders go through decision fatigue. I heard a leader say recently, I feel like I made a year's worth of decisions in one month last year. Mm -hmm. So I'll stop there. But I I just feel like because of the complex times, there are paradoxes. Here's the premise of the book. There are paradoxes that all involve social and emotional intelligence. So they're doable for all of us. We can learn these, but we're often not practicing them. And then we we see a resignation that didn't need to happen or a, a retirement that didn't need to happen so soon because we just weren't leading as effectively as we could. Tim, I love what you said there because, well, you, as you might imagine, I've read a lot of business books. Yeah. And as as we know, the first third-ish, I don't know, it varies, of the book is convincing you how critically necessary this book is right now. Yeah, yeah. And so, and a lot of times it feels a little trite because you're, oh, with globalization and competition, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah okay, globalization and competition has been going on for a while now, okay. Yeah, right. But no, I think I think you're keyed in on something in terms of, no, in terms of, genuinely the human experience and expectations. It's cool. Like bring your whole self to work 
has advantages in terms of, oh yeah, we're getting some, we're tapping into some creativity and some passion that you just can't get Mm -hmm. when it's like, no, 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 leave that at home. Right. Just do your job. Yeah. And you crank through the task list that I need you to crank through. Yeah. You just don't get that. Well, you do with bring your whole self to work, but you also have a whole new set of challenges and, and, and expectations that to, to live up to and deliver upon effectively. So yeah. So yeah. Well said. Thank you. Yeah. So let's let's hear about these paradoxes. You've you've in fact listed eight specific paradoxes. Uh, what are they? Yeah. Well, let me be the first to concede there might be eight thousand of these things mm. we need to learn, but I found eight. So just to list them, or at least a handful of them. The first one in the book is: I believe effective leaders, uncommon leaders, must be confident and humble. And very often you get one or the other, at least you lean toward one or the other. You're the very confident leader. In fact, some people wonder, are you too confident now, Bob? Or they're very humble and we're, that's winsome for us. But with a humble leader only, you kind of wonder, are we going to get to the goal? Or are we just going to be nice to each other? So I think the best leaders bring both confidence and humility. And what I do in this book, Pete, just so you'll know, is I center on a case study for each of these paradoxes. Mm-hmm. And my case study for this one was Bob Iger, yeah. the former CEO of, of, of Disney. Bob took that role, followed Michael Eisner. And Michael was this very, if in all due respect, cocky, kind of, you know, just full of himself and actually was so arrogant that he stopped conversations with Steve Jobs when they were trying to buy Pixar and never got it done under Michael Eisner. Bob Iger comes in, knows less about leading an empire like Disney, because he's never done it before, and calls Steve Jobs up and says, Steve, it's Bob. You don't know me. You know, we've never met. I'm, I'm heading up Disney now. And I can't, I just can't help but think that we might be better together. What do you say? And Steve Jobs goes, that's not a crazy idea. Let's talk. And he gets it done. Disney buys Pixar. But then what I love about this story about confidence and humility is, When they buy Pixar, Bob and the Disney Enterprise put Pixar in charge of all Disney animation. So I just bought you. Now, would you tell us what to do? That to me is confidence and humility. And that's rare, but I think it needs to not be rare. So Mm -hmm. that would be that would be the first one in the book. Yeah. Tim, once again, I love what you're saying here is like we have an idea. We have an example. And it's like, okay, I get what you're saying. So can can you just do that for the next seven, please? (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You're crushing it. (laughs) Let me give a homework assignment to listeners on this one. All right. I am trying to practice these eight paradoxes. I didn't write them because I know them all. I wrote them because I'm trying to be. Mm -hmm. My assignment for this one is when I'm in a meeting, I need to speak as if I believe I'm right, Mm -hmm. but I need to listen as if I believe I'm wrong. That's the kind of thing people will retweet, Tim. That's well said. Well, yeah. Well, thanks. I, it's a great <laughs> assignment for me because you know I don't do I don't do that listening thing. Well, I want I I listen as if I believe I'm still right, and I'm just waiting for my next turn to talk. So um, anyway, that's been good for me. So the next one is even more, I think, challenging. I believe uncommon leaders, paradoxical leaders, leverage both their vision and their blind spots. Which sound like, no, you can't have those together. But I actually believe in all the leaders I interviewed, they actually said, no, I ended up benefiting from both my vision. Here's the target we want to hit. But isn't it true when you talk to leaders, a lot of them will look back and go, man, if I had known then what I know now, I would have never started this enterprise. You know, Mm -hmm. I learned so many things. And it was because they didn't know 
the protocol. They didn't know how it was done before that enabled them to find a whole new way to reach the goal. So my case study on this one is Sarah Blakely, the founder of Spanx. So she created this industry, shapewear for women. You know, it's kind of a combination of pantyhose or or stockings and girdle. And and she ends up calling Neiman Marcus and ends up talking to a female executive and says, hey, can I come have 10 minutes of your time? She gets the meeting. She tries them on. She tries on Mm -hmm. spanks in front of a lady in the restroom. And of course, sold. You know, this is great, you know. Well, later, when Sarah's doing a Q&A session for a large group of business leaders, one of the people in the audience stands up and says, Sarah, how did you get the attention of a major department store in a trade show where there's a thousand exhibitors? And she said, trade show? I never went to a trade show. I just called up this executive. And Sarah looks back and says, it's what I didn't know that saved me. I didn't do the normal stuff that people wade through that most people die in. She actually, it was Mm -hmm. what she didn't know that helped her. That's right. She didn't know. This is not how this is done, Sarah. There's a whole process by which we onboard new products into our merchandising lineup. Yes, that's Mm -hmm. exactly right. And isn't it true? (laughs) The more experience you gain, the more you know what the protocol is, and you can get stuck in doing it the way we've done it before. So Sarah says, hey, it may be what you don't know that may completely put you in a blue ocean where there's nobody there yet. And that's what happened. I feel like when I started growing leaders, I didn't know what I was doing. Thank mm-hmm. God I didn't know what I was doing in some ways. So anyway, I'll stop there. But that was a really, really important one for me to, to learn from as I wrote it. Yeah. Mm, I love it. Well, let's hear about the third paradox. Okay. The third one is I believe effective leaders practice both visibility and invisibility. And all I mean by this, everybody listening that's a leader will go, I, I know exactly what you mean. When you're up front, in other words, when you're beginning any project or product or offering that you are going to sell, people need to see their leader very visible. We need to model the way. We need to set the example. We can't just give a lecture. We, we need to show them the way. Mm-hmm. But along the way, if we stay visible, other people aren't going to step up. They're going to defer to us in the meeting. They're going to lean on us. They're going to say, well, I can't say anything. Tim, go ahead. I think there comes a point in every leader's journey that that he or she says, I need to be invisible now. I need to perhaps not show up at that meeting because John or Susan needs to step up. Mm -hmm. So my example on this one is Dr. Martin Luther King. Between 1955 and 1963 in the civil rights movement, Dr. King was a very visible leader. He marched, he protested, he boycotted. He on purpose got himself thrown into prison. There were 29 times Dr. King was imprisoned. Part of it was just setting the example for making sacrifices. From 63 on, you begin to see him do something different in his leadership. He didn't show up at some meetings. And when young John Lewis would call him up and say, Dr. King, we need you here. He goes, John, you know what to say. He knew that young John Lewis wouldn't speak up if Dr. King was in the room, because, you know, I defer to Dr. King. So there's a point in our training process, in our equipping process, we've got to be not absent emotionally or not purposely absent because it was a hard meeting. Mm, it didn't feel like it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that's a problem today. Absentee leadership because we didn't feel like it is a problem. Mm. But I'm saying now we start strategically saying, you step up, you step up, you step up. And I just think the greatest leaders always find their way to do that. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Keep it coming. Number four. All right. Here's another tough one for me. I believe uncommon leaders are both stubborn and open-minded. Now, does that not sound like an oxymoron? <laughs> How can you be stubborn mm-hmm. and open-minded? But here's what I would say to this. I think at the beginning of any venture, leading any company, you have to be stubborn about a few things. I mean, you're not going to reach a goal unless you're strong-willed and you say, doggone it, we're going to do this. You know, you just have to have that. Obstacles will throw you if you don't. But I think any leader would say, if you're only stubborn, you're not listening to anybody, you're not open-minded to new ideas, you don't think you need anybody else, uh, that puts us in trouble. So being stubborn means you got a chance at reaching the goal. Being open-minded means you have a chance at taking others with you to that goal. So my example on this one was Truett Cathy, a long time ago founder of Chick-fil-A restaurants. Truett only had one restaurant for 10 years, and he was tweaking his recipe, not just for chicken, but for the way he was going to run this restaurant. And you, you and I both know he was very different. You, mm-hmm. you can like him or hate him, but very different. Closed on Sunday, you know, this is our values, so forth and so on. So I discovered Truett was extremely stubborn when it came to some core issues. He was very open when it came to almost anyone else. And what his core issues were, Pete, was his people. He really erred on believing in his people. He would keep people long just because he so wanted them to know they were, they were believed in. But he also had his core values. I know that sounds cliche, but he had a core set of beliefs that he said, this company will run the company. I don't care if it's 2021 or 1951, you know? And those core were what he was stubborn about. And everybody knew this is sacred here. And I think it's actually saved them. I think they're becoming a leader in the quick service restaurant industry. Now McDonald's is copying them. Now Kentucky Fried Chicken is copying them uh, because I think they have that core that they've never left. And what are some of the things that they just totally threw out the window? Like, you know what? Let's do the opposite of what we were doing. That's fine. Yeah. Well, so you might know this. I don't know how often you get to a Chick-fil-A, but wherever a Chick-fil-A is, you know, if you walk into that restaurant and you order something and you say, thanks, they'll say, it's my pleasure. You know, that's their phrase. It's my pleasure. So it doesn't sound like a big deal, but Truett Cathy introduced that phrase at their big annual conference for all the operators, all the owners. And he didn't push it. I mean, he he did push it, but he didn't demand it. He didn't say, now you're going to get fired if you don't use this phrase. But he kept creating a tone and a spirit and a culture of, let's say, it's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Ten years later, it stuck. And I would say what happened was originally people were going, I'm not going to say that phrase. First of all, in quick service restaurants, they don't they're not asking for great customer service. They want speed and cheap. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, most of the time you go to a fast food restaurant, you want it really fast, yeah. and you only want to pay two fifty for a burger or something like that. Okay. He kind of introduced a whole new way, and they adapted along the way to introduce some things that they just became open-minded about. So the way they've gone about it, the new menu items on the restaurant, it always involves chicken in some way, but there's all kinds of menu items they were adaptable about. At 92 years old, Truett Cathy actually designed a brand new restaurant called Truett's Luau. It was a Hawaiian restaurant. Mm -hmm. wasn't just selling chicken. He came up with all the decor and the menu at 92 years old. He's still learning. He's still growing. He wrote me a thank you note in his 80s for a book I'd written and just said, here's what I learned. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's in his 80s. He could teach me 
everything. So I'm not sure if that answers your question, mm-hmm. but um, that's what I think of when I think about what you asked. Yeah. Well, yeah, the open-mindedness that, that really shows in terms of like, it's not like, oh, we've already figured out restaurants. That's how it is. Like, no, yeah. here's a new kind of restaurant as well as, that's right. hey, I read your book in my 80s and uh, and here's some learnings. And yeah, that's got to feel good to get that, yeah, that letter. Absolutely. Cool. Let's hear number five. Okay. A next one. Yep. This one really is geared at the heart of a leader. And I think sometimes leaders maybe aren't as aware of their heart issues, not just head issues. We need a master. I believe uncommon leaders practice this paradox. They hold high standards up for their people, but offer gracious forgiveness. So high standards and gracious forgiveness. What I mean by that is, well, let me put it to you in the opposite way. If we only have high standards and not gracious forgiveness, our people aren't going to take any risks because they're going to be afraid for their jobs. You know, if you just have a bunch of high standards and I I may get fired if I miss, make a mistake, they're going to be scared to try certain things that we need them to try to move the company forward. But if we only have gracious forgiveness and not high standards, people are going to give you mediocre work. They're going to go, oh, he'll forgive me. He'll forgive me if I, you know, if I, if I'm lame on this one, it's no big deal. So I think we need to say, we got these high standards. Think about Amazon. Think about Apple, these great companies that set this ridiculous high standard for the industry they're in. But I think the best leaders say, I'm calling you up to this high standard, but just know I love my team members. And if you shoot for the standard, you give it everything you got and you miss it, you're going to be forgiven. Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind, I want to double click on this one because this is one I often talk about and people go, how do I do that? I don't know how to do that. One of our Habitudes images, we teach leadership with images. One of our Habitudes images is called the Golden Gate Paradox. And it's actually a paradox for this one. You're familiar with the Golden Gate Bridge. It was built way back in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Because it was built during the Great Depression, they had a whole line of people that joined the team to build the bridge. They were just regular workers. They were just looking for jobs. So they weren't engineers. They'd never built a bridge before, but they needed money. So they hired these workers who were up on the scaffolding, you know, building this incredible engineering feat in San Francisco. And people were falling. Mm. They were falling to their death. So they have a meeting with a foreman, Mr. Strauss, and Strauss is asked by the workers, could we put a safety net underneath this bridge? Well, that was not common because it was going to cost a lot of money. And that was just not common at the time. But Strauss thankfully said, you know what? It's going to cost us some money, so we're probably going to go over budget. And it's going to cost us some time to build this net, so we're probably not going to finish on the deadline. But I owe it to my people to do this. So they put a $300,000 net, and back then, $300,000 was a lot of money. They put the net up, and quite the opposite happened. They actually finished on time and on budget, but here's why. Now the workers, because they had a safety net beneath them, could focus on succeeding, not surviving. You know, more tension on the thing yeah. itself. It's so it's like, whoa, don't do this wrong or you yeah. die. Uh, okay. And by the way, don't you know companies, everybody's just trying to survive, not succeed. I mean, if they were honest, they'd say, I just don't want to lose my job. So I'm saying if we find a way, figuratively speaking, to put a safety net and say, go for it, give it everything you got. I'm going to catch you if you fall. Oh my gosh, people stay. That's a beautiful image, yes. And, and I guess what I'm thinking about Think about the net, the, the infamous, uh, or as it can't be just famous, <laughs> it's both uh, yeah. Netflix culture document, which is, which is funny that that's, 
achieve such fame. Part of me thinks like, well, every company should just like have that, but and be clear on that. But it's rare, and that's why it's famous. So, and and I think one of the points there was, hey, you know, you're going to perform at an exceptional level, or you'll be given a generous severance, and yeah, and you're going to be compensated you know, top of market as well. And, and so that's kind of how we operate. Yeah. And it's not, and I get the vibe that it, there's no animosity. It's like, Hey, you know what? You're, yeah. you know, you're, you're just kind of not delivering at this level. And, uh, and so this may not be the place for you. That, that's not going to feel good, of course, <laughs> to, to get that messaging. Yeah. But, but there is a bit of that, that net. And, and I like, I have been on the receiving end of that as well. I remember a notion of, uh, it was an expectation that, uh, in consulting that I, I was to perform zero defect analysis, which is really mm. kind of intimidating, right? Yeah. When you're like a few months out of college, <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. So don't make any mistakes. That's our expectation. Like, really? Is that fair? Yeah. But I guess really like no mistakes that like the client will notice or, or your, your manager will notice. So just take the time to double check it in advance basically is the practice. And, and so I, I remember falling short of that. And also receiving gracious forgiveness in terms of like, hey, well, for yeah, it's just work. <laughs> Nobody died. Yeah, uh, but yeah, this is why we believe in this because it can hurt our credibility. Yeah, and we're backtracking a little bit, uh, and so let's figure out how we can. Yeah, uh, how we can do that. So yeah, so that's nice, and and it feels good. It's interesting. I like I, I remember the word forgiveness is interesting, and in that well, I believe we all we all make mistakes. And we all need forgiveness. Yeah, and yeah, I remember. One of the first times someone actually said to me, I forgive you. Mm. It was sort of off-putting. One, people don't say that very often. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Like, literally, I forgive you, Tim. Yeah. It felt a little odd to me because it was like, oh, because it's sort of like, you're not telling me I didn't screw up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is what most people say. It's fine. No big yeah, deal. Yeah, it yeah. happens, Tim. Right. It's like, in fact, it, it, it almost double affirmed. Yeah, you screwed up, Pete. Yeah, right. But then it also... So at first I didn't like it. Yeah. I was like, whoa, it was, that's kind of intense, but also very true and right and big of you. And I mm. like and respect you more. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's just that it takes a little getting used to, but it's awesome. That's my take. And what do you think about forgiveness as a word and a term and, and a social vibe? Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. It's weird. It seems spiritual, like maybe in church we say that, or maybe God says that to us in church, you know, but you're right. When someone says, I forgive you, it can feel at once like, well, that's patronizing, you know, or that's condescending. I'm, I'm the holy one here, and I'm going to forgive you. I am perfect, and you're not. But, but I think of what I love, what you just said was, that person didn't say you didn't make a mistake. They're actually saying, yeah, I'm sorry. It was really bad. It was, it was bad. You know, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. But then they let you off and say, let's do better next time. One phrase we try to live by at our organization, Growing Leaders, is this. Let's shoot for perfection, but settle for excellence. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So, but because excellence is pretty good. We know we're human. So I worked for John Maxwell for 20 years And I feel like John modeled this for me right out of college. I was in my 20s at one time, and I, gosh, I did some wingnut, foul-tip, bonehead things. I didn't know what I was doing. But I went to John with fear, thinking, oh, my gosh, he's going to let me go. And he didn't. He said, you know, we learned from that, didn't we? And and let's let's talk about what we learned. So I had to come up with some things I learned, you know. But I built some confidence up and thought, I'm going to keep pushing myself because he's not going to let go of me. And for 20 years, I stayed there. So anyway, that, I, it was just a great, great lesson for me to say there is a heart issue to leadership. And I think that's it. 
Yeah. Well, no, that's, that's beautiful. And John's beautiful. And we've had him on the show a couple of times and that's neat. I actually keep forgetting I need to send him something. <laughs> we'll just let listeners, uh, hunt down that episode if they're really curious about that. There you go. So awesome. Okay. So, so high standards and yep. gracious forgiveness. And, and so maybe while we're on the topic, like in practice, when someone screws up, what do you recommend we say? So that's a good phrase. Hey, we learned up there, didn't we? Yeah. I forgive you. Yeah. It, for some personalities, I think can really be powerful and for others can be very off-putting. What do you think? Yeah, it can be. Yeah, of course, people bring different experiences to the workplace. So that might be, I don't know how they're going to respond, but I tell you what, the classic story for this one, it's not my case study. I, mm-hmm. my case study for this one is Harriet Tubman, the, the leader of the underground railroad during the civil war. She's a brilliant picture of this. But the story I think we probably all heard, the business story, is Tom Watson, who was a former executive at IBM. He was quite famous for having a young manager under his care that made a million-dollar mistake decades ago. And he called him into the, Watson called him into the office, and the guy came in and spoke first. He thought, man, I'm going to just rip the Band-Aid off. And so he said, I suppose you want to fire me for my mistake? And Watson said, why would I want to fire you? I just spent a million dollars on your education. Let's keep going, you know? And I thought, what a great attitude that is. Mm -hmm. But I mean, it sounds cliche, but that's essentially what a boss needs to do. We learn from this. Let's make sure we did learn from this. Let's not repeat it. But now let's move forward. But let's keep the standard high. And I think most people need a leader to keep the standard high. Most of us would begin to settle in for average you know, whatever my teammates are doing, if it's average, I'll, I'll be average. And I think leaders need to keep calling people up to a standard that's above and beyond what we would do on our own. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, let's hear about the paradox about being both deeply personal and inherently collective. Yeah. So this is the, all of these are different categories of paradoxes. This is the paradox of vocabulary. Okay. This paradox is, have you ever noticed when a leader is communicating with a team of people or any audience for that matter. The best ones are inherently collective, meaning when they speak, you can tell they see the big picture. They have a grasp on the gravity of this issue. They see the whole, you know, not just part, they see the whole. And yet as they communicate, you get the feeling they're talking to you. They are deeply personal in their language. So I can think of great speakers I've heard before. You hear them talking and go, man, he gets it. She gets it. But then they start telling a story and you go, oh my gosh, did he read my mail last week? You know, that sort of thing. How did they know I was feeling that right now? So I think this ability we need to develop of being inherently collective, but yet deeply personal is brilliant. My case study on this one was Mother Teresa. Mm-hmm. So most people have heard her name. She's now a saint uh, in the Catholic Church. But Mother Teresa was a great leader. She started this order, the Sisters of Charity in Calcutta, India, and it became the largest order of its kind, thousands and thousands and thousands. And she didn't start it thinking, I'm a great leader. I'm going to build the biggest company. She didn't do that. But what she did was she grasped a big picture issue. There were people living in poverty and dying on the streets. And she thought, I'm going to address that issue. We're going to do it one life at a time so Mm -hmm. I can stay personal to the needs. And when I go to a donor, I'm going to have a story to tell. Not, well, did you know that 53% are actually dying? She didn't do that. So she would talk to people that would say, 
don't you think a government program would be more effective than a, a bunch of nuns in Catholic church? And, and they would say, this is going to destine your plan to fail. And she would say, no, it's going to destine us to scale. Isn't that brilliant? And the reason she said that was you scale when people see you setting an example that you're not leaving the personal touch. And people go, I know that's how life ought to look. You know, in customer service, we don't want to lose the personal touch. And so she was doing it so beautifully. People just kept joining and joining and joining. So she's in Calcutta. And then there were men and women. Then there were this group and then that group. And now there's groups all over the world. I think the brilliance of it is it is counterintuitive. She never lost sight of the big picture. This, this is huge. But she never, ever, ever lost the touch. Uh, let me tell you one cool story from her life that might be a cool thing for your listeners to hear. One day she's in Calcutta on the streets, even though she's heading up this huge thing, she's wiping the leg of, of one of the people that are living in poverty. She's wiping the leg because it's leprous. They have leprosy and it's, it's pretty gross. <laughs> well, there were some business people that were touring the building and they saw her on the ground wiping this leg that's just ugh. And one of the man turns to the other man next to him and says, oh, I wouldn't do that for a million dollars. Mother Teresa looks up and says, neither would I. Her point was, that's not my motivation. And uh, it's moving to me, but I'm just thinking, I never want to lose why I got into this gig in the first place, which is to serve these people. And I need to feel what they're feeling. And so when I address them, they don't feel like I'm in some ivory tower that can't be touched. And I'm some lofty guru now that's written a bunch of books or whatever. I don't want to lose that touch. So yeah, Mother Teresa is my great example on that one. And I feel like that's an aspiration that I want to have, collective and personal. Yeah. Mm, yeah, that is powerful and quite beautiful that indeed that in in having the personal touch and and such in this case, compassion, or yeah, I guess there's many, many virtues or dimensions of excellence. <laughs> yeah. Just depending on your flavor and vibe and organization that you're working with. When done at an exceptionally high caliber level, inspire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And touch and motivate. And that is, it's hard to quantify exactly what impact that it has, but it is vastly greater than the one, even though your your focus is on the one. So I'm picking up what you're putting down with regard to the word paradox here. Yeah, it really is weird. It's a, almost oxymorons are kind of what it feels like until you dig and go, oh, I see. I see how those two can go together. So yeah, it's really fun. Okay. So let me... Uh, Let's see, what am I missing? Oh, two more. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So one of the paradoxes is one that I think we've all said to ourselves at one point, I need to be both a teacher and a learner. So Angela Arendt is my example on this one. Angela Arendt was asked to leave the United States and take over Burberry coats in London, this high-end fashion coat, plaid coat that usually was purchased by rich old ladies, you know, back, back in the day, back in 2006 when she took over. When she came in, the brand was on a decline, not an incline. It, they were losing money. And they thought, oh my gosh, we may be on our way out. So Angela comes in and her job, the board said, was to save this brand. The first thing she does after she meets her fellow executives is she meets with the youngest team members at Burberry. I mean, 20-somethings. Interns were in the room. 
And she says, I want to learn from you. What do we need to do different that will build the brand again and start reaching your people, your colleagues, your peers? They weren't reaching the millennials. And at the time, it was the millennials that were the new adult consumer. Well, this group of people came up with a bunch of ideas. These were young professionals. One of the ideas they came up with is the art of the trench. And they said, let's on our website put a place for our customers to put pictures of themselves in our coats, which will prompt them to buy our coats. Mm -hmm. Now, it sounded kind of funny, but it worked. In fact, the art of the trench is a page on their site. You scroll through it. There's all kinds of pictures, mostly of young adults, young professionals Mm -hmm. in a very nice coat. The brand began to take off, tripled in size. It was crazy. But Angela, if if she were here today, she would say this. I had to be a teacher and a learner. I obviously went in as a teacher. I had to lead the way. I had to run point on saving this brand. But I knew one of my first jobs was, if we're going to reach new customers, I got to talk to some people that understand them and say, here's what you need to know. So it's just, uh, I actually have found that most leaders will confess to me, I'm either one or the other. I'm either really good at learning or I'm really good at teaching, but not learning. And I think this is what we have to kind of juggle together. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Yeah. And uncommon leaders are both timely and timeless. Yeah. The last one is timely and timeless. This one will probably make sense. I have found that in today's world of rapid change, this is cliche, but we have to be timely, meaning we've got to keep up with the times. We need to read the culture before we lead the culture. So we need to be relevant with technology. We need to be on the cutting edge with our offerings, okay, our products and services. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think the best leaders are also timeless, meaning they don't leave behind those timeless skills and values that made the company what it was when it first began in 1901, maybe. So Walt Disney is my brilliant, brilliant example, I think, here. If you think about it, if you walk into Disneyland in Anaheim, California, the original theme park, you look to your left, it's timeless. You see Frontierland, Adventureland. He looks back at the past and says, here are the heritage of our nation. Here are the virtues that built us into a great country. You know, integrity and honesty, you know. But you look off to the right, there's Tomorrowland. He was fascinated by science fiction and technology and science and animatronics. So Walt Disney was this leader that said, I'm going to use cutting edge technology to message timeless virtues that we dare not leave behind as we progress into the future. So I think great leaders jump on a swing set. They swing backwards in order to swing forwards. Swinging backwards is what enables a person on a swing set. So I think we need to say, what was our beginning? What problem were we trying to solve? What was the mission? Why were we doing this in the first place? And then swinging forward, does that need still exist today? How could we repurpose our mission? Are there changes that we need to make? So I think that timely and timeless, I saved it to last because I think it's so important that we master both being pioneers along the way, as well as originators. Let's, let's hold on to the foundation that we built ourselves on. Well, and it's, it's really interesting. We talked about the Walt Disney example and timely and timeless, because as, as we speak, I've got two toddlers at home. And so they went through a bit of a frozen phase, which I guess (laughs) most American toddlers have, it seems. That's right. 
And then I, I just noticed at the end that that it was based on the the whole story was based on the the fable, like the Ice Prince or Ice Princess mm-hmm. by yeah. Hans Christian Andersen, or one of those, you know, or not Grimm, but but it's like like Grimm, Hans Christian yes. Andersen, and then and at the same time we've got these books of like Aesop's fables and fairy tales and just sort of like a book of like these classics, like Jack of the Beanstalk, yeah, and and all these things, and then you see Pinocchio, and and what's what's fascinating is like. Many of these stories are like old, <laughs> like mm-hmm. centuries old, and yet we're bringing the most like cutting edge like storytellers, musicians, designers, animators to make something like Frozen happen. And and sure enough, it's like like if you just really sit with some of the emotions in some of the songs, it's like it's kind of like deeply moving. Yeah, like oh is. my gosh, this person feels so isolated. Yes, yes. whoa, you know. And then if you like <clears throat> open up, get vulnerable, and think about the only ways that you feel isolated, right? That could really be moving. Yeah. So, uh, Tim, look at you and I are both tearing up at uh, I know. In one I interview. Know. Okay. And you're like, this is the child's cartoon. What is going on here? I know. Well, let me, can I volley back real quick? Yeah. I think one of the shows that Disney Plus, speaking of Disney, just put on, on their uh, channel was Hamilton, you know, the Broadway play. Mm-hmm. Hamilton is such a great example of this. It's a rags to riches story that is timeless, the story of Alexander Hamilton. And they're doing rap music. You know, mm-hmm. they're doing hip hop on the stage. So here's a timely way, a timely medium to share this story that kids, you might not want to read in a history book, but you'll go to a stage show. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the, the need of the hour. We have some pretty cool principles that our nation was built upon. And perhaps every civilization down through history was built upon. But we've got to find new ways. For the next generation, your kids, my kids, to, that will say, I-, I can embrace that because you found a fresh way to say it. Beautiful. Well, Tim, I really appreciate the rundown here. The clear ideas that are, are powerful and vast in their implications, along with very clear illustrations, stories, case studies that bring them to life. So perfection. Thank you. So lay it on us for professionals. Maybe they're not yet leaders or they're just starting to lead. Mm-hmm. Well, if you had to boil it down to uh, one starting action mm-hmm. that you recommend folks take that gives a, a big bang for the buck, a high ROI in terms of your your time and effort and energy yeah. and the, the leadership shot in the arm it gives you, what should we start doing or stop doing right away? Wow, that's a great question. You know, I'll be honest with you, two quick items are coming to mind. Let me see if I can share them quickly. One is, and by the way, we've done a course, Habitudes for Young Professionals. So someone that's kind of beginning the journey. One of them is a principle or an image we call Coffee Step. And it was built off a story. We had some interns when I was working with John Maxwell that I was overseeing. And one of the gals that was an intern told me the story way later when she became a professor at a university. But she said to me, I was immediately asked to get the coffee for the executives on the team, you know, as an intern. And she goes, I was actually put off by that. It was off-putting to me because she thought to herself, do you not realize I got a college degree? Mm-hmm. Are you asking this because I'm a girl? You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And then she said, I made a decision that I'm going to get the coffee. And she said, it was the smartest decision I made. When I was willing to kind of stoop and do that menial task, it got me in the room. I'm meeting the executives. I'm meeting the VPs and I'm starting up conversations. Pretty soon they ask me to sit down with them and talk. Next thing I know, I'm I'm interacting. They know me. She starts moving up. And so coffee step is simply this challenge. 
Don't be afraid to do the small thing, even though your talent enables you to do way more than that. If you'll execute the smallest of tasks, you might be amazed what will enable you to do. Because I, th- I think early tasks are not about talent. They're about trust. Can I trust you to do what I've asked you to do? So that would be one. The other is an image that we call early birds or mockingbirds. And this is kind of cheesy, but here it is. I think when people come onto a team at the beginning, they either start becoming a mockingbird. I'm just going to imitate everybody else. What are you doing? I'll do it too. Or an early bird. I'm the first one in the office. I'm be the one that sets the pace. Pete, you're going to love this. I had an intern a few years ago, second week on the job. He was an intern, summer intern. He said, Dr. Elmore, could I get a key to the office? I said, what do you need a key for? And I didn't say, but I was thinking, you're an intern. You know, you're going to leave in August. He said, well, I've been noticing. I got a lot to do here. And I want to actually do a really good job. I may get here before everybody else. I'm going to need a key. I said, you're going to get a key, you know. So my point of that, it seems so simple, but if you'll, if you'll be the early bird that's just going above and beyond, that second mile, that, that whatever, and then don't be afraid to do the small thing, it's probably going to lead to bigger things. That would be what I would say. Mm. Tim, that's beautiful. We only have time for a couple of your favorite things, but can you give us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Being a good parent has been very important to me. And one favorite quote I've tried to live by is this. When it comes to the next generation, it's better to prepare the child for the path instead of the path for the child. I think so many parents are trying to pave the way for their children and make it easier. I think we don't need to make it easier. I think we need to build strong kids that are ready for whatever comes their way. So prepare the child for the path, not the path for the child. And a favorite book? You know, one book I reread every year is a book called Leadership and Self-Deception. Oh, yes. Yeah. Have you read that one? Yeah, it's one I reread probably because I tend to be selfish, <laughs> would love to myself. And that book just gets me out of the box, you know, that whole thing of, of uh, and I think we don't realize it as leaders, but even though we say, well, I'm a leader, I'm about everybody else, really we're about getting our stuff done and now we have everybody at our beck and call. So that book's been so rich for me, yeah. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, you can go to timmelmore.com. You can find the book there at Amazon Prices, and I do events. But the nonprofit I lead for the next generation is called growingleaders.com, and that's where you can find me there. Tim, this has been a real pleasure. I wish you much luck and fun in navigating these paradoxes. Thanks, Pete. Great to be with you. I loved so much of what Tim had to say. Great stories illustrating these paradoxes. And the timely and timeless is what's really sticking with me in terms of making sure that you're both kind of following the trends and the what's hot and moving right now and interesting and also what is fundamentally, foundationally going to be with you for decades or centuries in terms of like the fundamental human condition and what first principles need to be alive. The show notes, transcript, and links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP730. I wish you a Merry Christmas and assorted other holidays. We'll be off for a couple episodes until the new year, and then we are talking motivation. Hope to catch you there, and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.